0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defense and international affairs. This week, Biden meets Putin. Did the summit help improve fractured relations between America and Russia?
1: It's clearly not in anybody's interest. Your countries or mine for us to be in a situation where we're in a new Cold War.
0: NATO tilts towards China and issues a
2: warning to anyone
0: wanting to take it
2: on in space. Once you declare that space is an operational domain, what you're saying is that you have vital assets in space on which your collective defence relies.
0: We learn more about the man who could be Iran's next supreme leader and as Royal Marine Commandos plan to move deeper into enemy territory, How do you get vital supplies to them?
3: What we're trying to do is is sustain a force that is isolated by design because it has to be, it has to put itself deep inside enemy territory. So it's a very difficult type of force to try and sustain.
0: Summits between American and Russian leaders have always been important, but in the last few years, they've also been rather bizarre. Well, now the Donald Trump era is over. Joe Biden headed to Geneva, determined to restore predictability to the relationship between Washington and Moscow. After talks of Vladimir Putin, he said he did what he came to do, promising his agenda is not against Russia, but warning he'll speak out against abuses
1: of human rights. It's clearly not in anybody's interest your countries or mine, for us to be in a situation where we're in a new Cold War. And I truly believe he thinks that. He understands that. But that does not mean he's ready to, quote, figuratively lay down his arms and say, come on. He still, I believe, is concerned about being, quote, encircled. He still is concerned that we, in fact, uh, are looking to uh, take him down, etc. He still has those concerns.
0: Mr Putin said there were signs they could make progress on
4: key issues. I think there was no hostility, quite the contrary. Our meeting took place, principally speaking, many of our positions. We don't share the same positions in many areas, but I think that both of these sides showed a willingness to understand one another and to find ways to bring our positions closer together. The talks were quite constructive.
0: But look beyond those press conference statements, and it's clear the US and Russia are still far apart on any number of issues. Well, joining me to discuss the summit is Shashank Joshi, Defence Editor at The Economist. Shashank, both sides talked about the constructive tone of the talks, but on issues like cyber, Ukraine and dissidents like Alexei Navalny, there's no hiding the fact there's no common ground.
5: There's, There's no common ground that was obvious, but I think the fact that there's a civil constructive conversation in which both sides were able to articulate their red lines, a sense of um, their concerns. That's progress. And on cyber, of course, there are profound concerns about uh, Russian cyber criminals and Russian state actors operating against American networks and other targets. But I think there was also some progress there. We saw Joe Biden give Uh, Vladimir Putin a list of 16 areas that he's thought perhaps should be off-limits to cyber attacks. Now, that may or may not work out, but I think the fact that we are having that more granular conversation about specific targets, specific limits, possible restraints by both sides. That is the kind of progress, I think, that has not seemed feasible or or probable for the last four or five years.
0: Yes, may or may not work out. Given Putin's outright denial of Russian involvement in past attacks, can we really believe any undertakings from him?
5: No, not necessarily. But of course, as as I think Joe Biden said before, his approach would be to both, uh, you know, verify and not trust. Uh, And of course, that's what these agreements are based on. It's possible, you know, in the past, in the Cold War, we have seen intelligence services agree tacit rules of the road. For example, the KGB and the CIA uh, did lots of shady things against each other, but they never... Uh, attacked, physically harassed or killed the intelligence officers of both sides. And so in a similar way, is it possible that we could see tacit agreements that either side will not engage uh, cyber intrusions into the nuclear command and control networks off the other. I think those kind of test agreements are not necessarily impossible.
0: Of course, we were told nobody wants a cold war, but NATO calls Russia a threat and Putin clearly sees America as an adversary.
5: That's right. Uh, I think the language around Russia was incredibly tough in the NATO communique. Um, You know, it made clear that not only have the problems from 2014 stemming from the invasion of Ukraine not been rectified, but they've got worse. We've seen more Russian activity around Ukraine, including in the last few months. We've seen uh, more Russian cyber activity and information operations in Europe. So I think I think NATO is in a very, very bad place with Russia, not least because um, the arms control agenda has completely broken down as well. The collapse of the INF Treaty, the collapse of the Open Skies Treaty. I think NATO is in a very bad place with Russia at this point.
0: Well, also with me today, is professor of Defense studies Michael Clark Michael given this followed Trump Putin talks isn't it true there was a pretty low bar to this being a success
4: yes I mean that meeting in Helsinki was a disaster from most uh, respects I mean President Trump thinks it was very good but I think he was the only one who thought it was and the point about this one is that as Shashank says you can see that it's 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 setting in train a series of other meetings between officials so they' they're, they're talking about Confidence building measures in relation to war and critical national infrastructure, they are going to talk about the Arctic, they are going to talk about uh, an exchange of ambassadors, they will talk about critical national infrastructure. So this uh, summit is important because it brings the two systems together, at least to lay out a roadmap of things that they ought to consider.
0: Russia, of course, featured in Joe Biden's first NATO summit as president, still the biggest threat to the alliance, according to the post-summit communique. But there's also been a shift in attitude towards China, a challenge for NATO, which officials say needs a united response. Shashank, China accused NATO of slander and said it should stop exaggerating the China threat theory. Joe Biden's keen to tilt NATO towards China, but are other member states as keen, do you think?
5: Well, they've agreed, they've agreed to mention it, you know, for only the second time in NATO's history, the first time being December 2019. And they've described it in terms that I think are fairly cautious and measured, but sober and inaccurate. The point here is not that NATO is venturing out into the South China Sea. The idea, I think, from NATO's perspective is that China is making itself felt in the North Atlantic region. It is selling arms to the uh, uh, countries around NATO in North Africa and Eastern Europe. Uh, it's it's acquiring a very high-end technology that is making its way into European countries and shaping their digital networks, both 5G and others. Um, and it is increasingly cooperating with Russia not just on things like early warning radar for nuclear systems, but also conducting exercises in the Baltic. So more and more, as China rises, as China's military becomes more ambitious, it's going to be shaping the security agenda around NATO. That doesn't mean NATO is going to completely refocus from Europe to Asia, but I think it does mean that it can't afford to ignore China anymore.
0: Well, the summit also agreed attacks in space could in future justify a NATO response under Article 5, the principle of collective defence which President Biden described as a sacred obligation. So how significant a change is it? Rosie Layden spoke to Jamie Shea, a former NATO Deputy Assistant Secretary General.
2: I think it is logical and was overdue uh, because already back uh, in December 2019, that's 18 months ago, during the last NATO summit, NATO declared that space was now the fifth, the new operational domain following cyber So once you declare that space is an operational domain, what you're saying is that you have vital assets in space on which your collective defence relies. And that means that space can now be a showstopper in terms of the success or failure of military operations. So the more you depend on those space assets, the more you have to protect
3: them. This is an explicit declaration that the space domain counts in terms of Article 5, but as you say,
2: wasn't that implicit anyway? Well, I I think it does two things. I mean, firstly, as when NATO a few years back, uh, back in 2014, declared that a cyber attack at a certain threshold uh, would be considered as the equivalent of an armed attack, it does send a message to an adversary uh, that uh, space or cyber have exactly the same value, as far as you're concerned, uh, as land, sea and air. So that, that can be helpful, but I think more importantly, what it does is it gives NATO internally a tasking to start looking at what you actually mean by an attack in space. For example, you know, would Russia or China have to destroy a NATO satellite, uh, blow it up uh, before uh, you would declare Article 5 collective defence? Would it be sufficient just to disrupt uh, the activity of that satellite through, for example, spoofing or electronic jamming techniques or through some uh, a cyber attack. Uh, uh, for instance? Could it just be hostile behaviour, as when, for example, recently Russia has navigated one of its satellites very close to a Franco-Italian satellite in space, in a kind of hostile hostile posture? Can we perhaps extrapolate that perhaps that threshold has to be quite high? I think things are changing fast. NATO did something very significant with regard to cyber. It issued a new cyber defence policy where it said, in the past, uh, the threshold that you just referred to was for a major, massive, you know, cyber Geddon, uh, cyber Pearl Harbor type of uh, attack. NATO lowered that bar very significantly in its new policy by saying, oh, no. henceforth, you know, a persistent pattern of low level cyber attacks, like these ransomware attacks that we've seen in the United States, would be sufficient for us to be ready to listen to an ally who would come to us and say, look, you know, please help me to stop this, please do something and ask for a NATO collective response. So we see that in the cyber area, this very high threshold has already started to come down quite significantly to take account of the reality that cyber attacks are occurring every day. So I imagine with space, it's going to go the same way, Rosie, that we're going to see initially a uh, quite a high bar, you know, uh, Russia, China using an anti-satellite weapon against a significant US or uh, EU satellite, uh, a NATO asset. Uh, a persistent sort of uh, militarization of space. You know, today NATO routes 40% of its communications through space. Tomorrow that's going to be 60%, then it's going to be 80%. More and more of the activity is going to be in space. So, space, as with cyber, is going to be uh, a more and more attractive target for adversaries to use. um So, you're going to see more hostile activity up there. And therefore, my prediction. You can tell me that I'm wrong if we have a conversation next year or the year after. But my prediction is that just like with cyber, you're going to see that threshold come down to incorporate attacks on commercial satellites and a consistent pattern of hostile, disruptive, uncivilized behavior. When it comes to the space domain,
0: Jamie Shea speaking to Rosie Layden. Well, let's pick up on that with Shashank Shoshi and Michael Clark. Michael, given that Article Five has only been invoked once so far, is this about the symbolism of saying NATO takes an attack on its interests in space seriously?
4: Yes, it is. The uh, I mean, remember Article Five is not a, a commitment to go to war. It's simply a commitment to treat an attack on NATO as an attack on all, and then consider what to do about it. Um, And so in a way, that's what Jamie was saying, is that we will now say that with cyber, as with space now, uh, we think an attack in space will be considered as an attack on the whole alliance and we will consider what to do. But but be no, no, no mistake, he's saying, it, it, we will consider it as an attack and we will do something. That's really the message, I think. And
0: Shashank, if you look at where many cyber attacks and disinformation campaigns are coming from, it brings us back to Russia and China, the twin areas of concern to emerge from the summit. Is NATO up to speed on these new threat areas, cyber and space? It's
5: getting there. NATO has a cyber centre of excellence Uh, that's based in Estonia that conducts a large number of cyber exercises. Um, A large number of states have also allocated their own national offensive cyber capabilities to the alliance. Of course, it's a defensive alliance, so it can't practice those in peacetime. But, you know, things like the UK's National Cyber Force that was uh, publicly avowed earlier this year, that is now formally allocated to NATO. So if, for example, NATO needed to target a Russian air defence system, it would have the means to do so. Um, But I think what we always have to bear in mind here is the language of cyber attacks really obfuscates and conceals a great deal of activity that's of different sorts and you have as you said disinformation you have ransomware you have disruptive attacks but also you have a great deal of of plain vanilla espionage the stuff that russia and america and china did long before the internet existed and no one is is ever going to really deter that in any meaningful way
0: shashank joshi good to speak to you thank you for your time today this is citrape The Army's mobile field hospitals are supposed to be ready to deploy anywhere in the world in just five days. But can you be sure they can do it? Claire Sadler joined an exercise in Hampshire designed to put their skills to the test.
6: A green Land Rover with a red cross speeds up to the entrance of the mobile field hospital. A sprawling mass of green tents in a field in Winchester.
7: This is exercise Chiron Certify. And what we're doing is we're bringing together all of the specialists that we need to build and deploy a field hospital. And this is our big test. After this, we'll go on to five days readiness to deploy anywhere around the world.
6: That's Lieutenant Colonel Pete Hale, the commanding officer of Tutu Field Hospital. The unit is being tested on its ability to establish a full working facility under canvas. Within 24 hours, it should be able to treat its first patient and then take three to four days to become fully operational. Sergeant Susie Bypond is part of the field surgical team and works in the operating theatre. It's been manic this morning, yeah, with with, um, all the patients coming through and getting things ready for validation, so yeah, it's been busy. The exercise lasts four weeks, takes place every two years, involves around 300 people and is designed to put everyone through their paces. Lieutenant Colonel Pete Hale again.
7: Our medical personnel work in NHS hospitals for the majority of their time. They're really good at their jobs. What we need to do here is to prove that we can build a military hospital, bring everyone in together, and actually provide a really high quality of healthcare. Why do we do this? It's so that when forces go overseas, they know they're getting the highest quality health care to look after them, should they get injured or ill. So left a
8: quadrant
7: entry wound.
6: Step inside the hospital and the atmosphere is busy, but calm. There are two emergency bays, one operating theatre, two intensive care units and a 12-bed ward. All lead off from one central corridor. The patients are played by a mix of real people and high-tech dummies. OK, so that's the only other injury is the hip injury? It's very realistic. We have um, what's called casu- sims so casualty simulation, and we have these real-life dummies that we um, tick through as well, that can be operated on and they can simulate breathing and they can talk as well. Over the course of the exercise, the teams are set numerous medical emergency scenarios. Lieutenant Colonel Paul Davis is an anaesthetist and intensive care consultant.
5: Sure, so we're running a critical care transfer serial. Uh, We're doing the simulated uh, collection and transfer of a post damage control surgical patient from a remote surgical facility. We're transferring them by battlefield ambulance, ventilated. Uh, to the 21212, the field hospital that you see uh, here, uh, and then we'll then take that patient into the intensive care unit, hand that over to the intensive care team. The training we're doing is extremely important. Uh, we all work in, you know, in NHS practices for the most part, so any opportunity we can to do military-specific training is very important to our ability to effectively deliver on operations.
6: Back outside, it's hard to miss the green tent adorned with the word "vet." Lieutenant Colonel Pete Hale explains they're trying something new.
7: We've got a veterinary hospital uh, that we're experimenting with. uh, That We're we're looking at how we can help support a veterinary hospital uh, working alongside uh, a human hospital. So that's a really new thing for us. We also have um, uh, the army band that are here with their decontamination CBRN role.
6: This exercise will run for a couple more weeks, at which point Tutu Field Hospital, all being well, will then be certified to take on the role of the Army's High Readiness Hospital.
0: Claire Sadler with that report. A sixth round of talks this week tried to find a way to revive the stalled international nuclear deal with Iran. But in Iran, attention is focused on Friday's election for a new president. The vote could hardly be said to be free or fair. Candidates have to be approved by a committee handpicked by Iran's supreme leader, who still holds much of the power. But Ali Khamenei is in his 80s now, and there's every chance the likely winner of this week's election could end up as his successor. I spoke earlier to Alex Vatanka, director of the Iran program at the Middle East Institute and a senior fellow in Middle East Studies at the U.S. Air Force Special Operations School. And he told me the frontrunner, Ibrahim Raisi, has been handpicked by the Ayatollah.
1: Ibrahim Raisi has so far had it all delivered to him on a silver platter. The uh, Supreme Leader's Office clearly want him to win. And he has asked everyone that uh, sort of answers to him. And that's pretty much anybody that matters in the Islamic Republic to help bring about a victory for Ibrahim Raisi. So, at this point, it would take a miracle for Ibrahim Raisi not to be the next Iranian president.
0: Raisi is described as a hardliner. In Iranian terms, what does that mean?
1: I mean, that's an important question. Remember, about 600 people decided to run in this presidential race. Within 24 hours, about 95 percent of them were told to go home and not bother. Uh, Seven men, who are all loyal members of the regime, have been serving the regime since 1979, when the Islamic Republic was born, were allowed to run. Obviously, they're all loyal to Ayatollah Khamenei. If they said otherwise, they'll end up in prison. They claim to have differences of opinion. They're not significant. So this is a very regulated, very limited election. In fact, you could call it a selection process. But nonetheless, you know, that that's what the Islamic Republic like to do every four years to give the world the sense that the Iranian people are choosing their destiny, which, frankly, I-, I think that's an overstatement.
0: The economy has collapsed since the U.S. reimposed sanctions, and Iran has been badly hit by coronavirus. What impact could this have on the election?
1: The last time Iran had elections in 2017, where 73% came out to vote, this time around, they're expecting a 50% drop in the sort of 35 35- Percent uh, voter turnout, which is, you know, a huge uh, drop. And that drop is because people just simply don't consider these elections to mean much for what they care about, including how they, uh, the government has dealt with the coronavirus. And to talk about a solution to these economic uh, uh, problems, health crisis the country faces, you need to talk about why Iran is internationally isolated. And nobody dares to talk about that, because that's outside what a president in Iran can do. That's what the supreme leader does. And he's made it very clear. He doesn't want anyone to talk about the red lines of the regime. Unless Khamenei, the supreme leader, decides to go in a different direction, you really can't expect much change to come out of Iran anytime soon.
0: And what impact do you think the arrival of a new president will have on Iran's isolation, on its attitude towards the West? Is it likely to have any bearing on the defunct nuclear deal or the tensions around the Strait of Hormuz, for example?
1: None. Uh, the Iranian president does not decide those sensitive issues. Hassan Rouhani, the guy who's president now, does not decide those key issues. And Iran rain certainly would have uh, less power. I mean, look, Ibrahim Raisi is getting this job because so many factions within the regime trust him. They don't think he's a troublemaker, they think he can be controlled. That is why they're supporting him. It's not because Ibrahim Raisi has a vision for Iran to go in a different direction. And in that sense, don't expect major changes to happen. Having said that, uh, the regime as a whole, including the, the next president, most, most likely Ibrahim Raisi, they do have to deal with the elephant in the room, which is what to do with the economy. If they don't fix the state of the economy, if they don't improve it, what they are going to face with is more and more Iranians coming to the streets and do so more often, more violently against the regime. And in that sense, you know, the regime has to deal with the issue of the sanctions, which means they have to make sure there's a deal out of these talks in Vienna and then hope for the best going forward. I don't expect them to want to bring about major change in all all the things they do in the region or at home, but they need to really start thinking about the way forward for their own survival. The regime's own survival depends right now on whether they're able to uh, change course.
0: And given the Supreme Leader is now in his 80s and is said to be an admirer of Raisi, do you expect to see him take charge once Khamenei is no longer on the scene?
1: You know, uh, Khamenei has uh, made sure that Raisi... Who joined the Islamic revolution when he was 20 years old back in 1979, that he gets everything to sort of uh, move forward uh, on the ladder uh, towards the top. People are talking about Raisi as the next supreme leader of Iran to take over from the 82-year-old Khamenei. That could well happen, but the only reason Raisi is getting that position is because Khamenei perhaps trusts him to continue The policies of Ayatollah Khamenei, who himself has been in power since 1989. If that is true, that's bad news, because basically the policies of Ayatollah Khamenei since 1989 is the reason why Iran is isolated. And if they continue in the same path, the same same troubles will continue to inflict Iran. I think, you know, uh, time will show if Raisi might if he gets the position of a president, if he becomes the next Supreme leader thereafter might choose to go in a different direction, but he's not there yet. he's not his own man. He's only in this race, he's only likely to become the next president just because enough people want him in that position because they think they can control him
0: Alex Potanka speaking to me earlier, well Professor Michael Clark is still with me. Uh, Michael Iran's presidents may not have much power, but as we were hearing, the front runner in this race may well end up as supreme leader in the next few years
4: Racy is almost certain to be the president. Nobody can see any other outcome to the elections this week. And um, in fairly short order, maybe in the next two to three years, he may well become the supreme leader when Khomeini steps down, if he stays in office long enough to retire, or or even if he dies in office. And the big issue, I mean, as Alex was saying really, is is engaging the, the people of Iran with any interest in this stuff. Um, they'll be lucky if they get a 40% turnout for this election. And remember, after the 2009 elections, that's when all the violence broke out, where the regime then cracked down very, very hard. And they're struggling against an economy which has underperformed for the last 10 years or more. And so dealing with the economy and dealing with the indifference of the Iranian population will be a major challenge for the regime. And whether AC is the president or not won't change that.
0: Finally today, as Royal Marine Commandos change the way they work in smaller teams moving deep into enemy territory, the way they're supported during those missions has to change too. They still need supplies, water, ammunition and medical support. As Bryony Williams reports, that's what's being rehearsed
9: helicopters dropping Royal Marines from Forty Commando deep into a fictional enemy territory under cover of darkness. There's hostiles occupying a building the commandos need to secure. It's the sharp end of the fight. But in order to defeat the enemy, you need the right kind of support. And this is one of the objectives of Exercise Green Dragon, to really test how logistics will be delivered to the UK's commando force going forward.
3: I'm Lieutenant Colonel Rob Jones. I'm the commanding officer for Commando Logistic Regiment, 3 Commando Brigade. What we're trying to do is, is sustain a force that is... Isolated by design because it has to be, it has to put itself deep inside enemy territory, uh, and it has to be dispersed to survive. Because if you mass force on the battlefield, you get you get wiped off the face of the earth. So it's a very difficult type of force to try and sustain. The real challenge, I think, for us is to work through the detail of that to understand, you know, what sustainment looks like in the future and uh, how we support us a, a dispersed force with what is fundamentally quite a big, heavy logistic organisation. So you know, bridging that gap between big, heavy trucks and, you know, the sea base and these really small, disaggregated light strike teams in the land environment is incredibly difficult and that's what we're trying to do. It's a big task, but, uh, you know, we're, we're up for it. We're up for the challenge.
9: Logistics is wide ranging and covers all aspects of combat support, such as making sure there's enough ammunition, fuel and water all in the right place at the right time. Commando logistic regiment need to test and train in new ways, just as strike companies do as Staff Sergeant Paddy Crow explains.
8: The future commando force uh, as a whole is looking to be fast and agile. We need to be able to work as a dispersed unit. So having a smaller footprint on the battlefield, uh, eventually being in place before anything even happens. So we don't have those big clunky uh, warlike support systems that we've seen in the days of Iraq and Afghanistan and those big logistical sort of chains that were established from. World War II, World War One back. Uh, now it's a case of work in isolation, potentially have enough uh, to carry with you for six, seven days. And then as we have to resupply and as we have to push forward, it's doing so quietly with minimal amount of kit. And then the kit you do have being innovative with it to make it work. So where we don't need to use large trucks anymore, our force protection assets, such as the Jackal, the large 50 cal on it, there's nothing to stop them bringing forward spares, water, food, anything that's required by the strike Company.
9: New technology is also being tested.
8: Yes, this is, this is Dr McGreamy here. How can I help? <laughs> so the patient's all ready to go.
9: That's the sound of a commando logistic regiment surgeon being guided through how to carry out a difficult medical procedure via a video link to a specialist consultant. It's just some of the advanced technology being trialled on Exercise Green Dragon.
3: My name's Surgeon Commander Chris Hillman. We've been trialling a few new bits of technology. A telemed service where our surgeon is able to get support back from a surgeon in the UK. The example is our surgeon is a vascular surgeon, very used to dealing with bleeding patients within his UK practice. However, certain procedures are unusual to him. Though he's trained for them, things like neurosurgery within the head, cardiac surgery within the heart or say gynaecological surgery will be something he doesn't undertake in his day to day practice. He is able to get specialist support from a neurosurgeon back in the UK to guide him through what is a complex procedure and give him support in real time.
9: This enables the medical support team to be smaller but more effective to assist anyone who is injured on operations. It emphasises the overarching theme of how UK commando missions will work. More compact, more potent. Royal Marines secure the target building and neutralise the enemy. This exercise shows all aspects of the fight are transforming. Here's Lieutenant Colonel Rob Jones again.
3: This is a generational change in the way that we fight, the way that the Royal Marines' contribution to defence is set. So, yeah, it's really exciting to be part of it. Uh, it's, It's a hell of a journey.
9: And that journey will continue to make sure the UK's commando force can be the most lethal and agile it can be.
0: Brianne Williams with that report. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark, to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Sitrep, And at bfbs.com slash sitrep, you can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye.
5: In a brand new, original BFBS podcast.
8: I just remember being so angry with everybody, everyone in Iraq, like beyond
2: angry and tears rolling down my eyes. What is it that drives people to be brave?
9: We knew that he doesn't have that long to live, so we had to continue.
5: To commit acts of heroism, often in the face of the enemy. I
2: guarantee you that if this battle continues, not only will we die, but you guys are going to be coming with us.
5: Here, from the men and women who've received the UK's highest military honours. They talk about what happened, what they went through at the time, and how they feel about it now. TM Medals. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And at bfbs.com slash podcasts.